Well, let's uh, open our Bibles to that passage we read earlier on. Uh, we return to this theme. Uh, the theme is, as we've seen in previous studies, the gospel itself. The word gospel means good news, so the gospel is good news, means the good news is the good news. And the good news is passed on by word of mouth, preached, discussed, shared in a conversation. It has one subject, that is God, specifically God in human form and nature, Jesus Christ. And we've seen the overlap in these first verses of the epistle where that which was from the beginning, this uh, unmentioned thing that was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes and so on, is obviously describing a human life, a life, a person that we can see, touch. This person is described as the word of life. The word of life is not only the person, but also the message. The message is the person. Uh, the word of life is the subject the Word, the eternal divine Creator, made human flesh with our flesh. But at the same time, the proclamation of that, the speaking of it. And so if I have a key text for you today, it's in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. So... That proclamation is good news of Jesus' coming, his work. It's something that the writer John can say that he's actually seen in person and that he has firsthand evidence of the subject, our Lord Jesus Christ. I was trying to think of an illustration and... One of the dangers of marrying a minister is, and being the child of a minister is, or the children of a minister is, that you invariably find yourself turning up in sermons as illustrations. One of my daughters, I won't mention Sarah's name, but one of my daughters loves it whenever she features in one of these illustrations because she feels famous <laughs> being used as an illustration. But however, when we had our children at home and they were young, Christine would invariably, at a certain time of the day, go and stand in the hall, to which all the upstairs rooms were uh, accessible, and uh, in standing there, she would announce one word. The word was dinner. That word may have to have been repeated once or twice, each time with greater, should I say, intensity, maybe even ferocity. But the word dinner was announced, certainly. And uh, well, one could have done a number of things, of course. Ignored it to your peril. Had a debate about it, what was meant by dinner. But in our case, the word dinner was usually received by the parties thus hailed as an announcement of a fact. There is such a thing as dinner, and the one making the announcement had first-hand knowledge of that fact since she had made it. 
But it was not only an announcement, it was an invitation, an invitation that had the effect of being a command, (laughs) uh, which was soon accompanied by several bodies bouncing down the stairs with great noise and acclaim, only to discover, of course, that dinner was there served. No one doubted, not one of us doubted, that the announcement dinner comported exactly with what lay waiting for us in the kitchen. It's a bummer of an illustration, but you got one or two of you smiling, which was a progress. Now, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again is the heart of the good news. And the apostles were eyewitnesses, both of his public life and of his resurrection life. This is the point of those words, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and physically touched with our hands. They'd heard him preach. They'd heard his words, the words of eternal life. They'd seen him day after day after day for for over three years. They had examined, looked into who he was, not just seen his outward form, but they had really gotten to know him for who he, he was. They looked on him more deeply, and they had touched him. Whether they're shoving him and having a bit of a roughhousing time together as a group of guys, and particularly after his resurrection from the dead. Now, this kind of eyewitness testimony is absolutely crucial to our Christian faith. Our faith is not faith in the dark. Uh, It's also central to the reception of the gospel of Christ. So when Luke, one of the gospel writers, is introducing his narrative about Jesus, he cites his sources. Here's what he says. They were delivered to us, the, the, the stories of Jesus, were delivered to us by those who, from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. In Acts chapter 4, verse 20, we find this very same John with the Peter, one of the other disciples, defi- defending their account when they were put to the test. They said, we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. In John's gospel, the writer says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, that is, we saw clearly His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. And Jesus sets it all up for us when He tells the disciples, the apostles, you also are witnesses because you have been with me from the beginning. That was vital. You've been with me from the beginning. And so it is that after the resurrection, when Jesus appears to the disciples, He showed them, we're told in John 20, verse 20, His hands and His side where the spear had pierced him. One of the disciples wasn't there that evening, that first evening, and he wouldn't believe. He said, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his wounded side, I will not believe. Thomas understood the necessity of being an eyewitness. 
And Jesus himself knew our need of such eye-ear-touch witnesses. When he appeared in the upper room and he said to them, See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then when he comes and Thomas is in the room, he says to Thomas, What were you saying, Thomas? Come here. Put your finger here where the nails were. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. Now, these are, these are vital because we need to know that what we believe we, that really happen, don't we? That's why the apostles are given this particular mission by Jesus. For Jesus, especially in his risen life, is the substance, sum and substance and subject of the Christian gospel. The divine life of the Son of God was made manifest, the writer has said. John has said here in verse 2, the life was made manifest. That is the risen life of the resurrected Lord. The life was made manifest, and we saw it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Jesus is the eternal life who was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now here you notice the Trinitarian fact that lies behind these texts. First, the human life of our Lord was heard and seen and beheld. And we're to take that language in its natural sense. This was his true humanity. They literally heard his voice. They saw his miracles and they saw him perform the miracles. They looked at him in his resurrected Humanity, the human life of the Lord Jesus, was encountered by these people. And then the divine life of our Lord. This is the one who, at the one and the same time as he's on earth, is with the Father. This one, who is both divine with the Father and here human now standing amongst us, was revealed. That word, uh, with the Father there, let me pick that up for a second. That word, with, for those of you who are into Greek, is the word pros in Greek, meaning toward or face-to-face with or right up close to the face of someone. It's the same word that's used in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was face-to-face with God, and the word was God. Then John will go on to say something about that word, that he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is the answer to one of the church's earliest heretics, a man called Arius. And Arius claimed that there was a time when the sun was not. And he went on to say that the sun was the first creation of God. Well, John 1 and first John. Both place Jesus before creation as the creator. In other words, everything that is made is made by him and therefore follows him. And it's this one who is the eternal life that we, we saw this last time. Let me just 
say some more about that. This eternal life is the life of God Himself. Eternal life is qualitatively different from natural life. Natural life comes to an end. But the eternal life is indestructible. Death cannot destroy it. Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Eternal life means life. It's the life of God himself, therefore it's timeless. In him there is no yesterday, today, or tomorrow, only now. Jesus Christ is that eternal life. He not only has it, but he's the only one who can communicate it. He's the only one who can give you eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, we read in John 17, verse 3. And whatever in the Gospel of John or in the writings of John, we read the word life, and it always means eternal life. In John's Gospel, for example, we find Jesus saying this, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And then he goes on to say why. When the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. Or in John chapter 6, we hear him say this, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, eats me, will live forever. So all of those texts, you see, are emphasizing eternal life. Eternal life is not a quality which belongs to time or earth. And yet this eternal life will be used of the Christian. A Christian has eternal life. You have eternal life. Your soul will not die, disappear, end when your body stops working. You have eternal life. And you, as a child of God, will be immediately in the divine presence. If you look at verse 2 there, uh, formally, John introduces us to the Father. And when God, John uses that, that expression in his writings, God is not simply a figure who acts paternally towards people, fatherly kind of way. You get to a stage in life when you're no longer uh, one of the guys. You become kind of a father figure I'm trying to learn how to do that and it be sincere and weighty and it's just not working really. But that's a, that's a kind of feeling we, some people have about God, that he's a kind of paternal, fatherly, well-meaning person. But when we use the word father of God, we are saying that metaphysically, so outside the realm of physics, metaphysics, he is the source of life itself, all life itself. And it's this life that the Son transmits to those who believe in Him and who become God's children. So the Eternal One then assumes a human nature so that in the form of a servant, 
in the form of a human being who is a servant, he might become obedient to death in our place for our salvation. As a human with a truly human nature, he has a human soul, a human intellect, a human will. He assumes these in order that he might fully participate in the human condition, that is, like the children of Abraham, whom he came to help and to save. He doesn't do that in the form of God. He does it in the form of a servant. It's as a servant that he abhors the grievous elements of earthly existence. It's as a servant that he determines to do the Father's will in face of suffering. This is what enables him to be a sympathetic high priest to us, comes alongside us. It also is what makes him an inspiration to us, an example for us, an encouragement to us in our earthly pilgrimage. We look at Jesus and we see him suffering what he suffered and we think, he did that for me. He understands what I'm suffering. He can come alongside me because he suffered in his human nature, not as God because God doesn't suffer anything. But Jesus did in his human nature. He understands and I can go to him in my time of trouble. And yet, having said that, at no point does he cease to be the eternal Son and the divine Word. And his glory, so John tells us, is actually the glory of God. The glory seen by finite creatures in a finite way is still that of the eternal Son of God. Cyril of Alexandria, one of the church fathers, puts it like this. The Word became human not according to change or alteration. In other words, the Son of God did not alter or change in any way, but rather by the power of an ineffable union. This human nature that was designed by the Father and executed in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit is taken, as it were, assumed by Christ, the Son of God, and united to Him in such a way that that union will last for eternity. It doesn't change God the Son in any way, but the human nature of Christ becomes the Son of God's human nature. In John's Gospel, there's that little incident where people are talking about Jesus and they, they, they estimate that he's not yet 50. He was in his 30s, for goodness sake. But apparently they, he looked so worn out, perhaps with all the, the weight of the world's woes literally on his shoulders, they reckoned him not to be any more than 50 years old. And it was after they'd commented on this that he announces to them that he remains the eternal unchanging God who called himself I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It's only because he remains what he is as the divine son who's in the bosom of the father that he can decisively reveal God to those who've never seen God. And this is the point of our, our uh, discussion this evening. That language that's used back in verse 2 about being manifest, the life was made manifest. John uses that language elsewhere in this little book. 
Here's the life manifest. The secessionists, these people that were going to the church, were in the church, apparently members of the church, but whose hearts weren't in the church and who eventually left the church by the schism. What they were was revealed, was manifested by what they did. We read in chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus, whom people do not know other than by faith today, Jesus will be manifested to everybody who's ever lived all at the same moment at his parousia, that is, when he comes again. And when he comes again, not only Jesus will be revealed for who he is, but we learn from chapter 3, verse 2, that the children of God will be revealed for what they are. I mean, we just look the same as everybody else right now. With all the quirks of nature, the weaknesses of nature. But when Jesus appears, they will see what we really are. When we, when our bodies are changed and we are raised on that last day, with bodies like His glorified body, they will see creatures that they think are gods. And they will be. We will be. We'll have been godded. Don't take that to an extreme. Let me now explain what I mean by that. We will have eternal life as God has it. We will be holy as God is holy. We will be complete. And we will be able to see God. We'll be able to see into the essence of God. All of that when Jesus comes again. And why did Jesus come? Well, John chapter 3, verse 5, He was manifest to take away sin. He was revealed to destroy, to take away, to remove sin. And He came so that love, the love of God for us, would be made manifest to us. We'd see it in flesh and blood and in His life and history. So the flow of the passage so far is that what was revealed by God at the beginning in the incarnation of Jesus and what was observed by the apostles who were with him and saw the stages of his life and his ministry is now proclaimed to us. It's, it's told to us. And the apostles proclaim the word of life so that we may be united to them, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Now, now we know from the book of Acts, for example, Acts chapter 2, that from the very, very beginning it was important that the church be in fellowship with the apostles. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Irenaeus, uh, writing, well, he was, his, birth, his dates are 120 to 202 AD. He helps us here. For in no other way could we have learned the things of God unless our Master, existing as the Word, had become man. For no other being had the power of revealing to us the things of the Father except His own proper Word. For what other person knew the mind of the Lord, or who else is his counselor? 
Again, we could have learned in no other way than by seeing our teacher, hearing his voice with our own ears, and having become imitators of his works as well as doers of his words. We may have communion with him, receiving increase from the perfect one and from him who is prior to all creation. Now, what is he talking about here? Irenaeus lived, well, he was born in 120. Jesus died around about 35 or 30 A.D. And yet he he says here he's seen the teacher, heard the voice, imitated the works, done the words, had communion with him. What does he mean? Well, we know that John and the apostles literally saw and heard Jesus. But so do we. Through their ministry, so do we. As we read the Scripture, as we read the apostolic writings, the New Testament, whereas John's is a first-hand testimony, just as Peter's was when he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, we ourselves heard the voice from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter's saying, we were there. We've been there, done that, got the Galilean t-shirt to prove it. We were actually there. A big difference between being told about the game and being at the game. You just have to wait till you go home to find out how the game's going. And yet, this is the experience of every believer. I, I find this well illustrated by Gregory Nazianzus. Uh, he lived between A.D. 325 and 391. They all died young, these guys, usually at the stake or in, to the lions in the Colosseum. This is what he writes. At his birth, we kept festival, both I and you, and all that's in the world, and even above the world. With the star of Bethlehem, we ran, and with the Magi, we worshipped, and with the shepherds out in the fields, we were illumined, and with the angels, we glorified God, and we glorified Him. And with Simeon, we've taken that baby Jesus up in our arms. And with Anna, the aged woman, we make our responsive confession. What's he saying? He's saying that the Christian, as they read the Scriptures, the Christian, as they come to Christmas, particularly he has in mind here, and as we remind ourselves of the stories that we know so well over and over and over again, We imagine ourselves being there. We can think our way into what we are reading. We can put ourselves there, and we can celebrate the arrival of the baby. We can can imagine the star that's leading the wise men. We can imagine those magi coming in with their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. We can imagine ourselves out in the field with the shepherds when they're overwhelmed by this brilliant light from heaven and all these angels singing the noise, the sheer noise of the heavens, awake with the joy of the angels singing the praise of the birth of Jesus. We can 
We've been there. We've been able to to pick up the story. If we could, we'd have taken the baby in our arms. We've we could imagine taking that baby in our arms, the baby Jesus. And we identify with that old lady, Anna, as she makes her confession. So you see, we have fellowship with the apostles by coming to believe in Jesus through their word. To be in fellowship with them is to hold fast to that good deposit of the faith. To be in fellowship with the apostles is the alternative to having fellowship with the secessionists, those people who have their own agenda, they have their own view of Christianity maybe, they have their own pack of uh, principles that aren't fundamental to the faith, and they're prepared to leave the church for it. Having fellowship with the apostles means you don't turn your back on the apostles' church. To be a good gospel minister is to be in fellowship with the apostles. And to be a good gospel church means to be in fellowship with the apostles. Now, what do we mean by fellowship? If ever there was a word that's been devalued with use, it's this word fellowship. Just imagine the way it's used sometimes in Christian circles. We have a room upstairs behind me that's called Fellowship Hall. Go in there during the week most of the time, and in fact, there's absolutely no fellowship going on in that room. None. Because nothing's going on in a room. Fellowship Hall. I remember there were periods when it would be announced in the service that after the service, we're going to have a time of fellowship over a cup of coffee in the back room here. I never heard that announcement made without thinking, are they saying we're going to go through there and we're all going to be levitating over cups of coffee? I mean, fellowship over a cup of coffee seemed to be, to be a strange thing. And then you go back to Britain, and they'd use the same language, only it was fellowship over a cup of tea. I can't think of anything more unnatural. Tea. Uh, I, anyway, I'm, uh, nothing about I just don't like tea. Just know that. And have never knowingly drank it. So fellowship can be abused, can't it? The word can be abused. What does it really mean then? Well, it really means to be in union with something or someone. This is how Jesus illustrates it in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, if this is the vine, these are the branches. The branches aren't over here. The branches are in the vine. They belong to the vine. They, They get their sustenance and sap from the vine. You are the branches. The branch that abides in the vine... As you abide in me, you in me and I in you, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what union is. It's being joined to Christ, united to Christ. So the life, of, the life eternal of Christ comes pouring into you, keeping you alive, keeping you alive spiritually, keeping your faith burning in the midst of darkness and doubt. To a fellowship with the apostles is to be joined with them in this communion 
this union with them that is bound up in truth, the truth. We receive the truth from them. So the Christian proclamation then rests on their revelation. Because you have seen, this is what we read in John 20, because you have seen, Jesus is talking to Thomas, who wanted to see, but his fingers in the prints of the nails and his hand in the side. Jesus says to him, because you have seen, you've believed. Blessed are those who do not see but who believe. You know, the Apostle Peter reflected on that in one of his uh, letters. And he writes to these people, and it's with a sense of wonder in his voice that he says to them, you know, I've been there. I was on the mountain. I heard from his own lips. And like John What I heard and saw and touched and handled was the Son of God. But having not seen him, you love him. This was a source of wonder to the apostle. Having not seen him, you love him. What 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 enables us to love the Lord Jesus whom we have not seen? Because through the ministry of the apostles, they, by their writing, open our eyes to him. They open our eyes to who he is. You know, in, in the old days when they had, when they had kings, and uh, kings are always looking for queens, and usually there's a, there was a kind of, uh, they didn't really have an app on their phone because they didn't have phones. Back in those days, you know, findaqueen.com or whatever. So what they did was they would write to various royal palaces around Europe and ask if there was any, any candidate that they would like to be considered to be the queen, especially the Queen of England. They frequently lost their heads, so there was a risk of business becoming Queen of England. Uh, and so there would be a letter written, and the letter would describe as best the letter could, the person. Uh, And there would usually be some attempted uh, painting of the person. Uh, All all that to try and communicate something of this person that they'd not met or seen. Usually, by the way, there were great disappointments. But anyway, that's, that's another matter altogether. We are not disappointed in our Jesus Because you have seen him, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, one of the other reasons why John is so keen that we be in communion with him is that he wants us to know something else, not just to know Jesus, but to know one of the benefits of knowing Jesus, which is the assurance of our faith the assurance of our faith. Having not seen him, you love him. That love is born of that conviction, that assurance that, yes, Jesus is mine, and I am his. 
Now, I ask you this evening, are you, do you have that assurance? I'd say that one of the goals of our worship and our preaching in this church is that you would come to that conviction, an assured conviction, that Jesus is mine. It is the most wonderful thing in the world to know, to know for certain, uh, never to be afraid of losing him. And the more you hang on to that conviction, the more that assurance solidifies in your mind and heart, the more it releases joy, joy. That's what Peter saw when he looked at these Christians, having not seen him, you love him, and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I've never seen Jesus in the flesh, neither of you, but I've seen him in the Scripture, and I've seen him at work in my life, and I know he's at work in some of your lives, and he will continue to work in our lives until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, and our eyes behold the King in his beauty. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our knowledge of our Savior, and we pray this evening if there's somebody here who doesn't have that knowledge, that these words that we've read from Scripture, written by an eyewitness, the eyewitnesses who gave their lives for what they proclaimed, upon whom we build our confidence. And it's as almost having followed them into their knowledge of Christ, we have gone beyond their words. We've gone beyond what they said. And we now know for ourselves how real, how good, how marvelous he is. Grant tonight that you would lead us all to know that for ourselves, for certain. In Jesus' name, amen.